It's Friday, the 16th of June. I'm Anthony Day. It's the Sustainable Futures Report, and we're talking about sustainable energy. Not a word about the election. I'm sure you've heard far too much from multiple sources already. Oh, all right. Just one word. This government. It's not sustainable, you know. And that Michael Gove for Environment Minister... A former education secretary who is reputed to have attempted to exclude climate change from the geography syllabus. I'm sure we'll be talking about it at length in the future. But now, sustainable energy. I recently had the pleasure of hearing Professor Andy Hayes deliver a lecture. I contacted him afterwards and he agreed to share his thoughts with listeners to the Sustainable Futures Report. If you've been to the Patreon site at patreon.com slash SFR, you'll know that I've set a number of targets. The first was to get all interviews transcribed for the blog. I haven't reached that target yet, but I thought that this interview was too important to miss, so there is a transcript at anthonyday.blogspot.com. Professor Andrew Hayes is Head of the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at the University of Strathclyde. He's also visiting professor at University College London. We met in the first week of May and here's what we talked about. Right, well thank you very much. So, sustainable energy, why do we need it? We need it because... um just about everything, every aspect of modern life requires us to consume energy, transport, mm-hmm. heating our homes, lighting our homes, entertainment. Um, so just about every aspect of modern life requires energy. But the, the sources that we currently use to uh, get energy are finite and we are consuming them at a rate which is not sustainable. So I can take fossil fuels as an example took nature hundreds of millions of years to accumulate the fossil fuels that exist in the in the Earth's crust. Um, but we will consume, or we could consume if we don't change our current tra- trajectory, we could consume all of that in the space of a few hundred years. So that's not sustainable. So were we to carry on and not find alternative sources of energy, our current sources would run out. So we need to find energy that we can consume Uh, at a rate where uh, we can continue to consume that for the foreseeable future. In other words, it's sustainable. So um, a typical example would be solar energy. Um, It's uh, often said that there's enough solar energy falling on the surface of the earth to to provide all of our needs many times over, as long as we can figure out a way of getting access to it. Yes, a lot of people see solar and wind as the main sources Hmm. of renewable energy, but they say, ah, but the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Hmm. So, and they're all very expensive to put in, so why are we wasting our time with it? Um, Well, uh, we're not wasting our time with it. It, Ultimately, the sun is is arguably the only uh, long-term source of energy that we've got. Uh, Even the wind is arguably just another manifestation of solar energy. It's a function of... The sun, the sun's heating of the uh, atmosphere of the planet. Right. Um, so uh, that and that will be available for thousands, millions of years to come. Coal, oil, gas, uranium will not. They are all finite resources and can be consumed to exhaustion. Um, renewable energy is expensive. Well, 
arguably no it's not um, the uh, the cost of solar energy has come down dramatically the learning in wind energy technology is reducing the cost there as well to the point where if you had a greenfield site and asked yourself you know I want to build a power station what kind of power station should I build um, then from that starting point wind is is very close to being the cheapest option uh, in terms of the cost of the every each unit of electricity that you would generate but can we build enough of these uh, wind turbines to meet demand because there are a number of constraints surely there's there's the there's constraint in terms of the amount of land area that it would use there's also surely a constraint in terms of rare earth metals which you need to put into the actual mechanics of the generator uh, is that being thought through can we actually work uh, w with that limitation um, the honest truth is I don't have the facts and figures on whether or not we can continue to make enough magnets whether whether the rare earth is that is the constraining factor I suspect I suspect it isn't uh, because it is true that you you would really struggle to run your entire energy system based on wind for the very simple reason that as we know there are times when it's not available so there's a, there are rules of thumb that, that, that dictate how much energy or electricity you could sensibly get from wind and it's to do with the capacity um, credit calculation that you do. If you, if you have a, um, a, an electricity system based 100% on coal, for, for example, and you install a wind farm, and the wind farm has the same capacity as, say, a coal-fired power station, then the very first wind farm that you install, um, if it has the same capacity as the power station, then you could probably close down a power station. So you get a full capacity credit um, for the wind. But, of course, you've then introduced some uncertainty into your system. But that's okay, because the system already had some uncertainty in it. It already had the capacity to react to a, a, a trip of a power station, for example. So that's okay. You, can, you, you could live with the extra risk that the wind provides. But then if you put in another wind farm, equivalent to another coal-fired power station, can you do it again? Can you close another one? And the answer, of course, is no. The more wind you install... Um, the less conventional it can displace um, because you do need that sort of backup in the system. And it's difficult, it's not a precise calculation. There's a, there, have been, there are rules of thumb that imply that you can reliably get about 20% of your electricity and that's probably a conservative estimate. So you shouldn't try to get more than that from wind um, without, I suppose, having um, some some new technologies which are not already on the system that help you manage the uncertainty. In other words, if we left the system exactly as it is and just started closing down coal or um, or gas and replacing it with wind, you probably shouldn't go past twenty percent. If you want to go past twenty percent, you're going to need something else to manage the uncertainty in the in wind. Right. Uh, something else. Something else. Storage. Storage, or? storage would be one option. Uh, end use energy demand management is another option. Demand management, indeed. So smart meters and things like that. Um, smart meters would be part of the equation, I guess. But but what you really need is um, the capacity for consumers of electricity to stop consuming periodically to help you manage the system. Because if a, a large consumer 
ceasing to consume is is rather the same as a large power station starting to generate. It has the same net effect. Right. And that, there are clever ways of managing end-use energy demand, and that does include storage, for example. Right. Some of the end-use energy management is with major industrial users, isn't That's it? Right. They have interruptible tariffs. That's right. But we don't have an awful lot more heavy industry these days, so... Uh, and you can't just turn off the London Underground, nor can you stop the trains on the East Coast Main Line. So are we not having to move towards the domestic consumer? Possibly, yes. And, um, you know, there are some, some clever technologies that have been suggested for, for allowing even domestic consumers to take part in end-use energy demand management. And the, the smart refrigerator is, the, is, the, is a nice example that was, uh, uh, that was made an appearance in the press a few years ago. Um, but is that available? And that'll need some sort of super smart meter to, to actually work, won't it? Um, not necessarily. Um, the, the technology required to allow your fridge to take part in end-use energy demand is actually relatively simple. The, the, the fridge needs to uh, uh, receive a signal that says there's stress on the system and it would be good if you could stop consuming electricity. And it needs to make a decision about well, would it, is it safe for me to do that? Given that, you know what are the, the t- what's the temperature of the contents of the yes, refrigerator, yes. and if the, and if it is safe to do that, to switch off. Well, it sounds very complicated, but in fact, when there's stress on the system, the frequency drops ever so slightly. So oh, all you yes. really need to do is detect the frequency of the AC. Um, oh, as easy as that. Oh, so you don't need uh, special. Um smart meters and interfaces, it's uh, um, just, just a frequency you, detector. You could, you could do it on that basis. I mean, of course, you'd have to be certain that the, that, that the frequency was reliably indicating stress on the system. But that is basically what happens when the system is under a great deal of load. The generators turn a little bit more slowly mm-hmm. um, because of the load, and yeah. the frequency will start to drop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's quite, you know, a quite detectable yes. Um, yes. phenomenon. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes, yes. But presumably, you could also send signals through the um, through the grid because I send my my computer signals at home, my my network um, through power line adapters. Absolutely. So you can actually send signals. Indeed, you yeah. could. Yeah. You could. Um, so I mean, the, the frequency is is perhaps a crude and overly simplistic way of, of detecting stress on the system. But you're absolutely right. You can send signals down power lines I as see. well. Oh, okay, okay. So demand management, yes. Um, I, I do feel that the emphasis that we have, particularly in this country, is on supply management yes. and, and constantly increasing supply to meet increasing demand. But maybe that's a function of the fact we have a privatised industry and it's not in the interests of energy suppliers to sell less energy. I think there's a great deal of truth in that, yes. It's, uh, it is difficult to... So if you sell less, then arguably you make less profit um, unless you've got some other way of of monetizing the service that you're offering. So yes, it's very difficult to to see how uh, to to create the motivation for suppliers of electricity and and energy to to encourage you to use less. Yes, yes. Uh, Talking about um, sources of energy, you mentioned in passing nuclear Mm. but uh, in discussions we've had you also mentioned uh, these small modular reactors Mm. a neighborhood nuclear power station now that sounds interesting sounds possibly scary how feasible is it where where would we get this from so a small modular reactor is uh, the the, the modular implies that it can be uh, assembled off-site and delivered as a package 
on a, a palletized perhaps mm. arguably probably a little bit bigger than that um, and the, the technology to do that there are various uh, technologies uh, you know they are, are you know, basically the, the, the same basic physics that are in large-scale power stations but they can be assembled in a factory and delivered to site um, uh, you know, it's, it, so it's, it's, it's simpler than the uh, the extreme cost and large time scales that are inevitably involved these days with building, you know, grids, conventional large grid-scaled uh, power stations. So, um, one would help you. Know, the, the advantage would be they could be rolled out uh, more quickly. Of course, they're smaller in capacity, so hundreds of, 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 uh, of, of megawatts at most rather than uh, the sort of gigawatt scale mm-hmm. that you would have at a power station and yes indeed if you if you were going to try and meet your demand with these kind of devices there would have to be a larger number of small units um, but you know again given that the, the, given the extreme complexity of uh, of large-scale power stations and you know, the, the, the difficulty the challenges that we're going through for example to get the Hinkley Point power station built perhaps as an argument for this kind of technology. Yes, yes. So these units are presumably similar in size to what you might find in a nuclear submarine. Um, yes, not, not, not wildly different and, and you know, arguably that's a technology that could be adapted to, um, to provide a, a modular reactor design. Um, the good news there of course is that um, the UK has, uh, you know, has manufacturers that, that work in this area so um, it's perhaps a, a, an industry that we might have more ownership of our, on our own and indeed it, were it to be successful so perhaps a, a potential export market uh, export technology for us so we still have expertise in that particular field we do have some expertise yes in, uh, in power plant for uh, for ships and the like yes okay on one hand people might say I don't want uh, a nuclear power station at the bottom of my road but on the other hand a nuclear submarine has a nuclear reactor and some of the missions go on for months if not as much as a year and there Indeed. are people living in this structure Absolutely. very very close to a nuclear reactor apparently in perfect safety so indeed then uh, that's absolutely right I think when um, the US Navy for example uh, transitioned from uh, diesel-powered ships to uh, nuclear-powered ships uh, aircraft carriers in particular they transitioned from a refueling but once a fortnight to refueling once every decade or so. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, almost a sealed unit um, consumes, you know, well, needs very little fuel. It's fueled when it's installed and, and can operate for a very long time. Uh, almost, I would hesitate to say without any maintenance at all. You would want to make sure, you want yes. to can do some maintenance, make sure everything stays safe. But managing reactors on that scale is something that we have experience of. Yes. And there are no emissions. There are no emissions of carbon, that's, that's right. Yes, um, yes. This, uh, it's interesting though, we've got quite a lot of nuclear reactors in uh, the defence fleet, but it mm. doesn't appear to have gone into the merchant fleet. And the merchant fleet uh, is notoriously dirty in terms of the, the fuel that it burns. So maybe it's because that is still cheaper than putting a, a nuclear reactor into your uh, container ship. Yeah, and I think also, uh, 
I think there is no doubt that, there, that, that it, operating a reactor in, in a ship does require a degree of expertise yeah. and that maybe the merchant fleet is, is, is cost sensitive to the point where you don't, want, you don't necessarily want uh, um, highly trained nuclear physicists on every single one of your cargo yeah. ships. Yeah, yes, I suppose, yes. Uh, just going back to energy storage, well, there's a project which is the um, Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon, which is partly storage and partly a source of energy because the tides fill it up and the mm. tides empty it as well. That is a project which has been on the go, or at least has been um, the design has been around now for several years. It looks as though the government's decision is going to be deferred till after the election. Do you, mm. What do you think they should do? Do you think they should say it, it should go ahead? It's going to cost a lot less than... Uh, the uh, Hinkley Seamars power station across the bay, although of course it'll be a lot smaller, yeah. but it'll be a lot cleaner. It's interesting, isn't it? The other, I mean, the other uh, hydroelectric scheme that's been on the books for a very, very long time is the Seven Estuaries. So there's another, another, yeah. another um, arguably similar technology, a, a natural lagoon that is filled by the tide and, and which can be managed to provide storage and, and power generation. Uh, and we we obviously um, dither on these things. We mm. obviously find you know, there's, there's obviously energy there. There's obviously a storage capacity there. There is there are obviously some advantages, um, but it's clearly not a very it's not cheap, uh, and there are clearly some some issues with the seven estuary. There are there are some issues with regard to to damage to the environment. Mm. Mm. Um, it's hard to know what what really stalls the decision. Uh, because again, one can go back to the 1970s and find reports about the, the potential of using the, the seven estuary as a storage, um, and uh, difficult. So it's a hard yes, one to answer. Yes, and, and, yes. and part of the reason it's hard to answer is that um, the cost of alternative renewable technologies is changing so rapidly that that even something which looks cost-effective and sensible today. Um, might you know the the economics might look very different even in two or three years time. I mean, what we've experienced in the last five years or so is a is a dramatic change in the cost of, for example, solar power. Um, so, you know, it, it is it is a difficult decision to commit to some some very large high cost uh, infrastructure project like that. Um, and it's 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 therefore not really surprising, I think, that politicians dither a little bit. Think as an engineer. If you if you want me to nail my course to the mass as an engineer, I'd say let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Let's let's look at biofuels. Mm. The UK's biggest power station, Drax near Selby in North Yorkshire, is, is big, and it is one of the biggest polluters in the country. And they have converted half of their turbines and boilers to biomass. They burn wood pellets, mm. and. The theory is, of course, if you burn wood, yes, it'll emit carbon dioxide, but the carbon dioxide is absorbed by new growth of trees. Mm. And that sounds as though it's a really good idea. But then we find that Drax is actually importing its wood chips from American forests, mm. that it's had to invest energy and carbon in building pelleting plants, in upgrading the harbour where the ships go from. I don't know whether it's had to buy any new ships, but it's certainly had to buy new trains mm. to bring the stuff from the UK ports to the power station. And it's had to build 
massive great storage because you'd have to have specialized storage for wood chips. Mm, that's right. So is biofuel the future or is it a big con? Um, I wouldn't say it's a big con. Uh, I think, uh, as you rightly said, uh, on the you know at a, a cursory examination of uh, of burning wood to generate electricity implies that it is potentially carbon neutral mm. because um, carbon is extracted from the atmosphere when in the process of trees growing and then released again as you combust the um, as you combust the the wood to generate electricity. But of course, it's not entirely carbon neutral for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. Um, I'm. Uh, without without having without being able to give the, the precise figures, I'm fairly sure that it emits less carbon than burning coal does, and it's it's closer to sustainable. So some and closer to that, actually. <laughs> is that well? Yeah, I, I, and of course, it, it, it that will require a detailed calculation of how much carbon you're emitting by getting it from the place where it is where it's actually growing mm -hmm. to the place where you consume it, and in the right form to be consumed, um, and and it, you know. It, that calculation needs to be done, and, and and if if it is not actually reducing CO two emissions, then then that seems to be a rather wasted effort. But but that doesn't so so co-firing uh, uh, wood in power stations in, in as a replacement for coal um, may give you some advantages in terms of CO two emissions. It does not feel to me like the long term solution. Right. Uh, that, yeah, that, that, that's one sort of biofuel, of course, that's biomass, mm. but we can make a diesel substitute or even possibly a petrol substitute. Uh, or in fact, we can make gas, can't we, from right. uh, organic materials. Is there more of a future there? I think so, yeah, and, but, and, but, uh, you know, and, and there are new technologies in, uh, uh, coming along, um, uh, biomass based from, uh, developed from uh, algae is, is, yeah. is uh, uh, third generation biofuels is one example of a technology that probably isn't you know, isn't at commercial scales yet, but looks as though it holds a lot of promise. Uh, but you're right; we can make uh, transport fuels from biomass, and that feels like a, like a sensible way to go. Uh, you mentioned diesel and, and and petrol, I think, but you didn't mention kerosene. And I would say that Aircraft. aviation yeah. is is potentially a good use of uh, bio-based liquid fuels, because uh, in uh, you know if you have a, a car, arguably you can uh, use a battery in an electric motor, um, but you can't do that in an aircraft because of the energy density. That you need. You can, aircraft yeah. is, is very weight sensitive, so yeah. you can't easily put batteries on aircraft. And liquid fuels have got an enormous amount of energy per unit mass. So, so it's very difficult to replace liquid fuels in aviation. But if we could move to bio based aviation fuel, that might be at least part of the solution for decarbonizing the, avi the aviation industry. And that's important because aviation is growing and growing rapidly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So biokerosene would have a similar sort of energy density to traditional kerosene. It's 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 chemically identical to it. Oh right. Um, so and it has been burnt in uh, you know in uh, aircraft engines already. Um, there are some interesting. Uh, it's bio-based kerosene is is sort of is chemically perfect. It's been constructed. Uh, in a chemical plant, and uh, whereas uh, natural kerosene it has a variety of different uh, components in right. it, uh, and actually you have to manage that process. You have some of the some of those uh, additional components 
uh, are necessary for the reliable operation of the engine. Um, so actually making chemically perfect aviation fuel is not necessarily quite what you want, but you want, you want that, that blend of fractions mm -hmm. or blend of components mm -hmm. that works effectively in, 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 uh, in aircraft engines. But th that's not an insurmountable challenge. Right, okay. So from a sustainable energy point of view, we've got quite a wide range of options. Yes. The question I think is whether the politicians who control all this are aware of it and are actually working on working on the right track to keep the lights on. Do you think we're going to keep the lights on in the UK in the uh, in the next uh, few years? Yes. Um, is that because it's getting warmer and having milder winters? <laughs> um, no, it's because I think National Grid do a good job of managing the system. Uh, they've been doing so for a very long time. I think they do. They're an organisation who what they're doing. Yes, because it is a very, very complex uh, task. So it is, and it's getting more and more complex as time goes by, as more as different uh, renewables come onto the, onto the, uh, yeah. onto the scene. And the capacity margin gets really, really small and, and, and a little bit scary in the winters. But but again, um, that's very carefully managed and very and it's understood. And and yes, arguably the the, the risk is, goes up when you as as more renewables come onto the system. But I think the risk is well managed. Uh, and we spoke earlier about uh, industry that um, is prepared to to disconnect from the system so there are there are backups in place so it, you know before the lights went out in your home various industry consumers would already have switched off so the, there are there is a there are a number of ways number of, of tools in the toolbox for managing the electricity system and uh, I think I'd like to think and I, th I think I do think that we can rely on national grid to do that Andy, that's been a very fascinating review of uh, energy issues. I think we've gone for hours, but thank you very much for your time. And uh, maybe in uh, a year or two, I'll come back and uh, we'll see how things have moved on. Indeed, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. Professor Andy Hayes of the University of Strathclyde. Lots to think about, especially when technology is constantly changing the rules. Lots to think about in the wider sustainability context. I'm already looking into the Great Barrier Reef, combustible ice and automated ships. That's all for next time. Who knows what else will have happened by then. Have a great week and don't forget if you need a conference chair, a host for your awards night or a keynote speaker for your event, I still have a few dates free in the diary. Get in touch. I'm Anthony Day. Until next time. Mm -hmm.